The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, no news is not always good news. And the no news that the city of Holyoke got this past Friday about taking the Holyoke school system back from receivership by the Commonwealth has frustrated city officials. We'll talk with Holyoke's mayor and the de facto head of the Holyoke School Committee, Joshua Garcia, as well as the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, Amherst Masks Page. And karaoke for the kids. This Thursday, I have the honor of participating in Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County's fundraiser, Big Love, Little Performances. We'll talk with their executive director, Susan Nicastro, about mentorship as well as rickrolling. You big ham. (laughs) But first, let us introduce you to one of Franklin County's most influential people, Juanita Nelson, in her own words. Well, I went out to the country to live a simple life, get away from all that concrete and avoid some of that strife, get off the backs of poor folks, stop supporting Uncle Sam and all that stuff he's putting down, like bombing Vietnam, Oh, but it ain't easy, especially on a chilly night, when I beat it to the outhouse with my trusty dim flashlight. The seat is absolutely frigid, not a BTU of heat. That's when I think the simple life is not for us elite. But then I get to thinking, if we're ever going to see the end of that old con game, the change has got to start with me. Quit wheeling and quit dealing to be a leader in any band. And it appears the best way is to get back on the land. If I produce my own needs, I know what's going down. I'm not quite so footsy with those Wall Street pimps in town. Because let me tell you something, though it may not be good news. If some folks win, you better know somebody's got to lose. So I guess I'll have to cast my lot with those who are opting out. And even though on freezing nights I will have my nagging doubts... Long as I talk the line I do and spout my way out views, I'll keep on using the outhouse and singing the outhouse blues. That was the great Juanita Nelson. You read it so well. (laughs) And there's me talking to her in her cabin on Woolman Hill. Cutting myself off from uh, back years ago before she passed away. Wally and Juanita Nelson were civil rights activists, peace activists, war tax refusers, subsistence farmers, and advocates of simple living. They made their home in a community-built, rough-hewn, off-the-grid house, where I was recording that years ago, on Woolman Hill in Deerfield, where Wally and Juanita farmed the land. Before they came to Western Mass, they were both organizers for groups like CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, FOUR, Fellowship of Reconciliation, and Peacemakers. Wally spent three and a half years in prison as a conscientious objector during World War II. Prison was where he met Juanita, who was a newspaper reporter doing a story on Wally. Juanita herself, already a budding activist, having boldly integrated lunch counters and train cars as early as the 1930s. The Nelsons came to Deerfield in 1974 to practice a life of voluntary simplicity. They were founding members of the Greenfield Farmers Market, Greenfield's Free Harvest Supper, the Valley Community Land Trust, and the Greenfield Winter Fair. Their work and their memory lives on in the Nelson Legacy Project. And joining us from the Nelson Legacy Project is Betsy Williams a retired mediator currently living in southern Vermont, but we'll allow her onto the fabulous 413. 
She uh, first met Wally and Juanita in the early 1980s when she joined the Pioneer Valley War Tax Resisters. We're also, perhaps, joined by John Beatty, who first met the Nelsons in 1970, when, as an 18-year-old, he was traveling around the country doing draft resistance outreach in a converted old school bus. In 1979, he followed the Nelsons to Western Mass. Well, thank you. Uh, we do have uh, we have you both here. We've got Betsy via Riverside, and we've got Bob on the phone. Bob, let's yeah. start with you. Um, let's okay. talk about your first meeting with the Nelsons and what attracted you to them. When I first met the Nelsons, I was 18. I was already an activist from high school. Um, most of my friends that had been activists with me in high school you know, we're already burnt out and disillusioned. And then I met the Nelsons and some other people that were, I mean, they were old. They were in their 50s and 60s. Oh, please. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they had this philosophy, and it seemed to sustain them. And they'd been around doing this stuff since the Ice Age, it seemed. So I, I was really impressed, and uh, that attracted me to them, yeah. Now, they moved all around the country. They were involved in a lot of the early, what we call the, the contemporary civil rights movement of the 1960s and its precursors. As I mentioned, you know, I had many a conversation in the brief time I got to know Juanita about the what, things she was doing in the 1930s. And as you heard, Wally was, uh, you know, a conscientious objector for World War II. Uh, it's part of their their ethos, the both of them, for, towards pacifism. And it, it came at a, when you hear about World War II, if there's ever such a thing as a quote unquote just war, people often point to World War II. In your interactions with them, Betsy, what was your take on their response to why they wouldn't participate or why Wally wouldn't participate even in a war like World War II? Well, I think that their their belief in nonviolence was was probably more profound and deeply held than that certainly most anybody else I've ever met. And they really believed that people killing each other as a way to address issues of whatever kind were, was just not an acceptable option. Um, and, and that's what I would say to that. I, I think Bob might have had more opportunity to speak with them about that type of, that particular question than, than I did. Betsy, tell us about what uh, drew you to the Nelsons, Betsy, and how you got to know them. Well, I got to know them through the Pioneer Valley War Tax Resistance uh, group that I was a part of, uh, that I joined back in the 80s. Um, uh, so I got to know them even later in life than Bob's talking about. Um, and it was, you know, through that, you know, for me, um, I had been an activist. It was something that I sort of did separate and apart from my regular life, right? You, I did my work and whatever, and then I'd go to a rally or I'd go to do some political event. And, and really that was much more of an introduction to how do you live your life in a way that is consistent with uh, nonviolence and what you believe in. That is a life that they chose to live, and they uh, were war tax resistors, uh, as were some other notable folks uh, in the Valley that you were associated with, as you mentioned, Betsy. Talk about what war tax resistance uh, is and does and how the Nelsons inspired uh, the, the folks in Western Massachusetts, uh, some of whom are of great renown, who's had their properties seized. I know, Bob, you live next to 
uh, Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner. So many Betsy's that we we're talking about. <laughs> That's here. right. Our engineer is Betsy as well. But talk about war tax resistance and what that meant to the Nelsons and to your organizations, Betsy. Well, I think you know war tax resistance is about recognizing that a, at least a, a portion, a very large portion in the case of the United States, of your tax dollars are used to support the military and military expenditures. And so when you were, while there may be many things that the federal government supports that we might believe in and want to have them support, education, roads, infrastructure, all of that, when more than, more than fit, well, well over 50% of those resources are actually being used to fight wars in other places, it's actually stealing from, you could say, those other resources that, that may, that, that are about supporting each other and supporting our children and supporting families and uh, supporting people's ability to, to function in the world and get along with each other. So it, um, it's, it's choosing to funnel your resources in a different way. We're speaking with Betsy Williams and Bob Beatty, who are part of the Nelson Legacy Project, which aims to preserve the life and legacy of Wally and Juanita Nelson, who made their home on Woolman Hill in Deerfield. The home that they built with their own hands and mostly reclaimed materials is still like still exists, still still there, correct? How is the homestead connected to the Legacy Project? Bob? Well, about five or six years ago, after the homestead not being occupied for seven or eight years, um, at when Juanita left, um, it was falling apart. It was mostly a place where mice were living. And the conference center, Woolman Hill, was thinking about knocking it down. Um, people didn't like that idea. Over the next couple of years, they organized to, on a volunteer basis to rebuild the place, get it in decent shape, as like when the Nelsons was there. Um, and then about three years ago, we kind of drifted into, okay, we got this place. Now what are we going to do with it? And it was really important to us not to create an organization that held Wally and Anita up as deities, but to try to preserve their principles and lifestyles and thoughts, you know, their deep understanding of nonviolent living and practice. So that's what we're really all about, trying to do that. Bob, your, was your house also seized in war tax resistance along with Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner's house in yeah, Colerain? Yeah, a few months later, they figured they'd get another one of those buggers. <laughs> so they, they seized my house, too. You know, it's, easy, it's, more, it's cheaper to do two houses. There's like a wholesale. I guess so. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> what do you make of the people that say, though, that, you know, uh, you can disagree in large part that taxes are going too much towards war, but... Um, there are, you know, some people that think taxes shouldn't go towards feeding people. There are people that think taxes shouldn't go towards public schools. How do you draw that line and differentiate when, when somebody comes with you with that sort of critique? You know, military spending in this country is the brontosaurus in the living room. It's phenomenal. It's huge. It's over half the federal budget by a little bit. You know, it, it's robbing so many other things that we really need to be spending money on. So. 
it needs to be drawn attention to. And that's one of the things that war tax refusal does. It draws attention to this thing that nobody's even talking about. It's interesting uh, to note that the Nelsons, who we're honoring right now, a little bit of recent black history, if you want to call it that, in, in western Massachusetts with Wally and Juanita Nelson, that one of their methods of war tax resisting was income reduction. And that's part of their life of simplicity, where they just wouldn't make enough money and would live only, you know, farm only as much as they need and could perhaps sell a little bit to the farmer's market, but that they wouldn't hit a level where they would have to pay taxes. But they didn't. They, but they had this philosophy of simple living, that, and that's what drove them to live on a low amount of money. I mean, the IRS still tried to collect money from Wally and Juanita. They, they once arrested Juanita in the late 50s and put her in jail for a little while. They tried to take cars away from Wally and Juanita. I mean, you know, they were in conflict with the IRS. They, they were not just trying to get away with um, not paying taxes like Donald Trump or you know, many people. <laughs> we're, Shots fired. Yes. <laughs> um, the center also, the homestead, or could you talk a little bit about the the classes that you teach through the Legacy Project and at the homestead or near the homestead? Well, I can, I can start off and maybe Bob would jump in. I'm a relatively new uh, addition to the Legacy Project. Uh, while I knew the Nelsons and worked with them quite a bit um, a couple of decades ago, and I knew about the Legacy Project happening, I just fairly recently joined. So uh, I can just speak to what I know. Um, you know, as Bob indicated, a lot of the focus is on on education, on people being aware of who these people were, that they lived, where they lived and how they lived and why why that was significant, what, what, what their choices were and why they made them. Um, to help people kind of do some self-reflection on, do I do I live in a way that's consistent with my values? Why, you know, what are the things that are important to me and are the actions that I take and the ways that I live um, consistent with that? And, and, and so I think it's a really great opportunity for people to do that by looking at these people who took um, that to a level that I think for a lot of people would seem pretty extreme. I don't think it seemed particularly extreme to Wally and Juanita. Um, they were just living in a way that seemed right to them. Um, and, but I think it, it really sends it home for people to come, uh, you know, primarily what I think the project has done is had people actually come to the, to the homestead. Uh, tour the cabin that they built, uh, mostly with materials that pre pre-used materials that they got from places. Um, look at the little plot of land where they had a garden. Um, see how they kind of enacted what they did, and and then so there are, at the location there are also then quotes and um, so that there's discussion about well how did they do this how did they do that how did they manage these things and how, why did they do it that way what was that about for them and so it, it just opens discussion and I think so it's got a it's a nice combination of something that's theoretical that's about talking intellectually about you know why should someone resist war or why would someone resist war and how might they do that but it also sort of there's that physical actually seeing. Uh, and it, sort of the inaction of that, what what that might even look like. And so I think it's a really 
nice tool that has, you know, different ways of people taking in that information. Um, we've, so had, we've had work days and tours with high school students and college students. Um, and during the work days, in addition to what Nancy described, we also do things like plant garlic and chop firewood and those sorts of things. The kind of things that Wally and Juanita did in their backyard on Woolman Hill. Uh, the ho- homestead is there and being refurbished, and the Nelson Legacy Project continues to remember the work and life and legacy of Wally and Juanita Nelson. You can learn more about the Legacy Project. You can go to nelsonhomestead.org. There's video, there's audio of Wally and Juanita Nelson. I know that they didn't like to be lionized, but they are heroes to me uh, from Deerfield, the founders of the Greenfield Farmers Market and the Free Harvest Supper and the Valley Community Land Trust and so much more. Betsy Williams and Bob Beatty are both part of the Nelson Legacy Project. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Of course. Later in the show, Big Love Little Performances, karaoke to benefit the kids of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County. We'll talk to their director, Susan Nicastro. But up next, the Commonwealth has postponed an effort to return Holyoke schools to local control and has given the city very little guidance as to what to do next. Coming up, we'll talk with Holyoke's mayor, Joshua Garcia, and the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, Amherst Max Page. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. This from the NEPM News Department. Officials in Holyoke say they're frustrated with a response from state education officials over a request to begin the process of ending state receivership for the city's schools. In 2015, the state deemed the district as chronically underperforming and placed it under state control. In September, the Holyoke School Committee petitioned the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education or DESE for the remainder of our conversation, (laughs) saying enough progress has been made to take back local control. In a letter from DESE Commissioner Jeff Riley to Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia late Friday afternoon, Riley said more conversations needed to take place and deferred action on the request. Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia issued a statement this weekend saying the decision should have been a resounding yes with commitment to confer in a reasonable time frame to transition. Instead, a different message was sent with no plan, no benchmarks, no firm commitment, but just, quote, we are not saying no, but let's talk more. Here to talk more about Holyoke's receivership is the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. We are also joined by the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, Amherst Max Page. Thank you both for joining us. Do we got you there, Mayor? I I am here, and, and I also have my uh, vice chair of the school board, Aaron Brunel, with us, too. Oh, oh great. excellent. Great. So I know that the school committee had a retreat over the weekend on Sunday. I don't know if that was a planned retreat, knowing that this decision by Commissioner uh, Riley was going to be, or some decision was going to be made by February 2nd. Were you both at that retreat, and, and what came out of that school committee retreat uh, yesterday? Yes, we we were, actually. I'm going to pass, pass to Aaron let her take this one. Yeah, so the retreat date was absolutely planned ahead in anticipation of the letter coming. Um, I felt it was important for the school committee to have a plan to meet and discuss the letter as soon as it came out, uh, regardless of the direction that he was going to be steering us in. So what was discussed since there was no direction in what came out on Friday, at least from, (laughs) from what I could see from the letter? Yeah, so exactly that, right? So at least if he had said no, we would have known that our next steps would be to appeal to the DESE board, and then they would make the decision. 
But leaving it so very open-ended just makes it feel very much like, you know, what exactly do we do next and where do we go from here? So as the mayor can elaborate, too, we had some good conversations on Saturday um, with the lieutenant governor and the secretary of education, Pat Tutwiler, and they just both committed to helping us in our communications with the commissioner's office to at least establish a time frame for these conversations, he feels as though we need to have. Um, you know, we petitioned back in September, and he's only come to meet with us once since. So where were these conversations could have been happening in the last four months? He said they weren't. So we would just like a dedicated timeline of how he best sees himself moving forward. In addition to the mayor's office basically kind of hounding him just a little bit, your, your initial <laughs> request in September and then a secondary request or um, at least a timeline uh, was requested by the October correspondence. Um, so with no plan, like what with no plan offered by Desi, do you just go forward with the things that you already had initially planned to do with the Holyoke system? Like what, I, I mean, like what came about for for the future through your, your retreat or is this now something where you'll have to entirely regroup? So, well, <clears throat> what we've decided as a result of the retreat and we will vote on officially at our next school board meeting, which is February 12th, um, is to create another subcommittee within the school committee to work on exactly how we can regain local control. So working on exactly what our next steps are, engaging those stakeholders necessary, having more open dialogue. We will certainly be inviting somebody from the commissioner's office to attend these meetings on a regular basis. And our main focus now is just trying to get in touch with them to help establish a timeline to continue the conversation. You know, if we're not there yet, if we're not ready, then what do you want us to do to show we are ready? That is, just to add to that, too, please. Uh, you know, the, like Aaron Brunel mentioned in our conversation with the lieutenant governor as well as the secretary of education, they have given us a, for, a commitment to help facilitate with the commissioner coming up with that plan and a timeline. And you know, before I communicate back with them on the result of our retreat, I'm waiting till our board meeting February 12th so I can get a clear directive on what's going to happen with this subcommittee. And that way I can bring that information back to the governor's office and request that through this process that they offer some sort of staff support or help to meet with us regularly, hopefully monthly, to navigate these, the, you know, the plan to create this timeline. We're speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, as well as the vice chair of the Holyoke School Committee, Aaron Brunel. Is there an issue, a worry that some of this is a matter of distance? Like um, the current Desi uh, commissioner, it used to be the superintendent for Lawrence. Lawrence seems to be at least preparing to, like, is a little bit more integrated in its method to get out of receivership. Do you worry that because he's closer to another district and that seems to be a little, at least on paper, looks as if it's a little bit more of a priority because they've been in a little bit longer are you worried that like his distance from where we are and lack of um participation in your process might be and like part of this ongoing issue i 
I believe the distance is an issue, yes. I think it's unfortunate that we have people that are not invested in Western Massachusetts making decisions over Western Massachusetts. I think which district has been in receivership the longest shouldn't necessarily be a factor. It should be, you know, case-by-case basis, who's bringing their case forward to the state for review. And we very much do feel like Holyoke is not a priority. If it was, we wouldn't have gotten the decision at 508 on a Friday. Mm. Well, or lack thereof decision, right? This um, could be a good question for our uh, Amherst resident and the president of the Mass Teachers Association, Max Page. We're not sure if your microphone is working because we haven't brought you into the conversation yet. But how much does proximity, do you think, as somebody who oversees the union statewide, uh, have way into a factor like this with Holyoke, which, um, according to Anthony Soto, who is the receiver, the de facto superintendent right now, thinks should be coming out of receivership? Well, his microphone isn't working, so this is a perfect cliffhanger to take a break. Uh, We'll be back (laughs) in one bit with Max Page, we hope, as well as the vice chair of the Holyoke School Committee, Aaron Brunel, and the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I am Khalees Smith. And we are talking to the mayor of Holyoke, and we will soon be talking with Max Page, the president of the Mass Teachers Association, about Holyoke in receivership and the lack of news at all from a letter from the commissioner of the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education Friday, late when people dump news stories, about the future of Holyoke and receivership. Uh this is something that the governor, Moore Healy, promised that would be rectified on day one, that there was going to be a plan to get Holyoke out of receivership, demand a plan day one for getting Holyoke out of receivership, she pledged on the campaign trail. Uh, Mayor, was there any sort of realistic hope that you saw when you talked to the lieutenant governor about this on the weekend uh, for a, a, a real plan as opposed to maybe a timeline? So I think, you know, obviously the day one commitment was, I knew was unrealistic, but what was realistic to me was, you know, it, that the governor is committed to, to do this. She doesn't believe in receivership. Um, and, um, you know, I continue to remain very optimistic and hopeful um, in the governor's um, uh, interest in wanting to support helping communities get out of receivership. So um, I think what's going on at the at the state level, obviously, the, the governor's coming in new, the governor's administration, the commissioner's been there for a while. Um, it, you know, getting that letter so late in the hour, far in between from the time when when uh, when it was the you know acknowledge of receipt of our petition, with no communication here, just made us feel like or made me feel like you know, that there might have been a little bit of a disconnect that maybe, and it happens, right? Like, you know, mayor of a city, it even happens here locally on our own city initiatives, disconnect between, you know, certain groups and departments and, and certain departments and with this office or whatever the case. So I do think that there might have been a, a little bit of a disconnect between offices that, you know, the governor is certainly working on. And again, getting that call from the lieutenant governor on a Saturday morning, just kind of you know, that reassurance of the governor's interest and commitment to continue to support Hoyoke uh, through this process just kind of affirmed to me that, you know, this isn't the governor's doing. I think, you know, where the issue lies right now is the commissioner and 
where his priorities are and where Desi's priorities are as far as, you know, what communities they're helping uh, through this process in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the data suggests that there, the benefits from receivership are minimal at best from what I could find. And there's definitely some optics to this with the three cities that are currently in receivership and the makeup of their general populations. Do you think that that is in any way part of this and this deferment? You know, go ahead, Aaron. Did you want to? I just couldn't thank you enough for bringing up those points because there yeah. are those are key points to this conversation mm-hmm. that the mayor and I have been discussing over the last 48 hours <laughs> because the three communities that are in receivership are high poverty communities. They're high people of color communities. They're high English language learner communities. And to your point, they have been here for nine and a half years, they being the state, right? We've been under a directive of the state for nine and a half years. So if we haven't seen the gains that you want to see in the last nine years, who is truly responsible for that? Right. That's Aaron Brunel. Is, is it the Hoyle School Committee that doesn't have the authority to make the decisions in how our district is run on a day-to-day basis? Or is it the state whose directive the receiver is having to operate under? Aaron Brunel, the vice chair of the Holyoke School Committee. We're also speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, and the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, Amherst Max Page, who's been an outspoken critic of receivership uh, and of the Holyoke receivership. But I'm sure you have your pulse on the other communities that we've mentioned, Max, like Lawrence and Southbridge. What's the status of where they're at in coming out of receivership? And do they have a clearer pathway than, than the no pathway that the city of Holyoke was given on Friday? So uh, thank you, Monty, and I want to just offer my you know, appreciation of the mayor and the vice chair of the school committee. They've been working valiantly and working closely with our members our, and, our, and our locals um, in Holyoke to build a plan to get out of receivership. Look, this is, we're in never-never land in this crazy system. I want to be very blunt. It all relies on the inner workings of Jeff Riley's brain. I mean, literally, that's the law says. It's up to the commissioner to decide and when to go in and when to come out of receivership. And now we're all reading the tea leaves of his words. And there's no clear pathway. There's no obvious way out. There's no clarity on how you return democracy to our school committees. That's the Mm -hmm. same for uh, the other communities. Lawrence, of course, is represented by the American Federation of Teachers, so I don't know as much about it. We heard that that Jeff Riley was going to announce in Thanksgiving that Lawrence was first and coming out by the end of the year and that Holyoke Mm -hmm. would follow. Clearly, that hasn't happened yet, and obviously now we know that Holyoke has no clear pathway out. So it's enormously frustrating, and I think, as um, you just someone just mentioned, uh, there is proof. You don't have to trust me. You can look at the Boston Globe, big, exhaustive research, that having receivership does not actually uh, help the districts. That actually what you need is solid local control and investment support. In for the educators right. and for the community. So um, we're very frustrated by this and have, pat- and have put forward the Thrive Act, a bill that would eliminate this receivership and replace it with a way of really supporting educators and the community in schools that are struggling because of poverty and racism and uh, all the other struggles that places like Holyoke, Southbridge, and Lawrence face. 
That's Max Page, the president of the Mass Teachers Association, Amherst resident and UMass professor. It just, again, it seems like so much insider baseball to have Jeff Riley weighing in on the Lawrence conversation because he used to be superintendent there. Um, but I did not realize... He was receiver there, correct? Yeah, he was not- receiver there. Yeah, yeah, he was receiver there. Um, but now he's in charge of, of deciding for yep. all of all three receiverships what happens next so Mm -hmm. it's it it seems almost a little bit conflict of interest e and as if lawrence is being treated as the north star and how everybody else is obligated to continue but that's that's how it seems on paper (laughs) Um, and governmentally lawrence's school committee and mayor's office is in is in conflict i mean it's been reported that he's trying to change the school committee to be appointed positions instead of elected positions. Here in Holyoke, our elected school body has remained involved in the workings of our of our district. You know, we might not have the say, but we're there for advocacy. We meet. Our subcommittees are functional. You know, we have a teacher retention working group that we helped create to help, you know, deal with those issues and just... So we're we're ready as far as like the governance and how we work as a body. And it just feels mm-hmm. like the commissioner doesn't want to let us go yet because he can't count us as a win yet. Uh, Max Page, in the Thrive Act, is there something in in the writing there about um, co-teaching and the importance of multilingual classrooms regarding some of this as a replacement for the MCAS and uh as a as a standard of measuring the learning of students? Well, the basic idea of the Thrive Act is to eliminate the current, I mean, it's, it's to get rid of MCAS as a high-stakes test. It's to develop better ways of assessing how schools and students are doing. And the third part is the elimination of this receivership law and replacing it with a, with a series of supports from, from, from the state, but also building community support from the from the ground up and that means understanding the particular population and i think it's so important what was brought up it is interesting you do not hear about receivership in newton or hingham or weston but you do hear about it in very impoverished districts of largely latino students so the Mm -hmm. the students and their educators are being punished for their race ethnicity and um, low incomes and that's a real a real problem. We, we feel like we've had an experiment. The best I can say, the most generous evaluation is we tried an experiment of receivership starting with Lawrence in 2011, and it's been a failure. And what it has done is upset a community, sent educators fleeing, property values declining, and despite the enormously valiant efforts of the educators and also the mayor, the school committee, this is not the best system for the students or anyone in the community, and let's decide we're going to do something different. And part of that begins with allowing districts, especially Holyoke, where there is a unity across the administration, the school community, the union, to get out of out of um, receivership. We should be. This is a perfect moment to actually implement that. This question may be best suited uh, for the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, who joins us. We're talking about Holyoke receivership and the lack of direction that DESE, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, gave to the city of Holyoke about leaving receivership. 
uh, this past Friday. Anthony Soto, who is the receiver or the the superintendent at uh, the moment, does believe and said, I recommend that the Massachusetts (coughs) Department of Elementary and Secondary Education begin the transition to exit receivership in a careful and highly planned manner. Yet in the same letter, some of some of the statistics about where Holyoke (coughs) students are at right now are are less than ideal. Six percent of Holyoke Mm -hmm. students in grades three through eight and 10 percent of students in grades 10 met or exceeded expectations in math compared to 41 percent and 50 percent statewide respectively. Um, If you were to come out of receivership, what do you think the local control of your school committee could do better than has been done under the the receivership of Anthony Soto and uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to get those numbers to a a more moderate level? So so here's the thing. And, you know, and and, a conversation that I had over the phone with Commissioner Riley, you know, whether when it was in local control or under the control of a commissioner, neither of the groups, neither of the parties can't beat ourselves over the head over, you know, feeling like we failed to meet our target goals and objectives. Because like Aaron Brunel just articulated so well earlier, gateway cities like, you know, like Hoyoke, the level, we're a compassionate city. And compassion, you know, does bring a level of quality of life challenges that these kids are bringing into the school and you know um and quite frankly when we were in local control resources were you know extremely limited and because of the student opportunity act the district has more than what we've ever had when so there's a little flexibility there but nevertheless you know um the good thing that did come out of receivership i gotta say and i said in the past you know there has been some good uh, internal structures and changes that were done that might have been a little difficult when we for us to do when we were in local control. When you're in receivership, there's a, some flexibility to be able to uh, change things around internally. And that coupled with the infusion of resources that are coming out of the Student Opportunity Act, um, there's a bit of an uphill battle right now with the workforce getting uh, um, good uh, getting teachers um, on board, not just in schools in districts that are in receivership, but you know, uh, schools that districts that are in local control are operating in local control. You know, that's an area where we have to figure things out. But nevertheless, you know, um, with these structures and changes, you know, we just it's it's about whether if it's the commissioner or us, the outcome is going to be the you know it's it's um it's going to be the same. The only real major difference is the direction is coming from people who know this community best, and I think that that's where you can. Uh, see the boosts over time in in those test scores as we continue to work together as a community to try to um, you know improve the, the the outcomes that we're looking for as far as you know academic outcomes are concerned. So you know I you know the quality of life issues those are real issues and you know we're talking about you know whether if it's public safety what's happening you know mental health and what's happening in neighborhoods and people's homes are things that you know I, we ought to take a closer look at more if the state really wants to make a meaningful impact in gateway cities is investing there so that we're improving the quality of life of families and so when kids are going to school better prepared and better equipped to to um do what needs to be done in the school setting so that was my take on it i know aaron's got some good points to share too as well i believe quickly if you would aaron yeah, i think that i think an important viewpoint too to consider with the districts that are under receivership in a community like Hoyoke 
is our transient population. And, you know, we have homeless shelters and we're taking on refugee families. And, you know, we may have, we may be accepting students, for example, right now in February who may be at refugee status and don't speak Mm -hmm. the native tongue. And then come April, if they're in third grade, they're expected to take the MCAS and then their grades are held accountable towards us. So we need to be working on a lot of those issues. And, you know, I'd like to see our data broken down more by students that we've actually been educating since preschool, right? And students that we've been able to invest the time in. And how are we doing with those students? So to Josh's point, we need to be educating the whole child and the quality of life here and addressing those issues, which are not, generally speaking, a school department issues to have to address. And then as far as instant changes, I think just pride in community. I think, you know, with the challenges to hire the workforce, you know, and the longevity of teaching staff, like, they want to be involved in a district where they feel like their voices are valued and heard. And that happens when you have local control and your local union feels like they have recourse. You know, we don't hear grievances anymore. We're not involved in contract negotiations. Um, so people don't feel as committed here. I think one of the things we need to focus focus on is the reinvestment in arts and music. And we all know that those help educate the whole child and help with social emotional needs we need to be creating school communities where children want to come to school because they enjoy their day once they're here a quick last word from the president of the mass teachers association max page what's the future for holyoke and receivership in your opinion and what and when should it happen well i think holyoke should absolutely be on a path to uh, and receivership is actually a community that is united in this cause and I just think that we have to change the law because the way it is set up now, an endless period of receivership decided mm-hmm. by one individual, the Commissioner of Education, is a failed system. And the fact that we're all kind of kind of reaching around to try to figure out, you know, what is the way out is a problem. So I'm hoping that Holyoke will continue to persist in really getting clarity and coming out of receivership. That is the president of the Max Te- uh, Mass Teachers Association, Max Page, from Amherst. We've also been joined by Aaron Brunel, the vice chair of the Holyoke Public School Committee and the mayor of Holyoke himself, Joshua Garcia. Thank you so much for shedding some light on what went on this weekend. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Up next, it's a party, it's a performance, it's a date night. It's a sweet, meet-cute story, all to make a difference in the lives of Hampshire County young people. You're listening. Oh, the second annual Big Love, Big Little performances happens this Thursday in Hatfield and will benefit Big Brothers, Big Sisters. We'll talk to their executive director, Susan Nicastro. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. You can rickroll us at any time during this entire segment, Betsy, and we'll just bust into singing this song, because I think that's what it's going to be like on Thursday. Welcome back to the fabulous 4013. Kids today are no strangers to love. They know the rules, and so do I. Some type of mentor is what they're dreaming of, and they might not get it from any other organization, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I just want to tell you how I'm, th- I'm not sorry. Not about what your organization does, because that's wonderful. Just about this terrible Rickroll we have just done. Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County is never going to give up on kids aged 6 to 18, as they help families make important connections and gain access to vital resources by matching adult volunteers, bigs, with kids. 
Littles. And this Thursday in Hatfield is the second annual Big Love Little Performances, a Valentine karaoke theatrical spectacular with celebrity judges and hosts, including a one Monty Belmonte. Yes, I believe I will be singing something at this event. And we are joined by Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County Executive Director Susan Nicastro. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So You're, glad to be here today. Yeah, we're glad to have you. <laughs> Your organization is saying that kids need mentors now more than ever. Yeah. Tell, tell us why now more than ever. Yes. Well, I think we're, many people are aware that there's a real crisis in mental health in the, for young people, especially in the world right now. The fallout from the pandemic and the increased stress on young people um, has made mentoring that much more relevant because mentoring is all about relationships and the way that having more consistent relationships in a young person's life gives them so many, a whole host of benefits that last their whole lives. And we know those benefits include higher self-esteem, being able to express their feelings more effectively, more likely to go to college, more likely to have leadership positions when they become adults. Um, so many things that we know that mentoring provides. And this is more than ever, this is the time that we need more mentors to come forward. We have a growing list of waiting, um, list, growing number of kids on our waiting list waiting for mentors. And yeah, so we do everything we can to get the word out about how beneficial mentoring is. We do this work every day with young people here in Hampshire County and um, love having this opportunity today to get the message out to uh, everyone listening that please come forward and be a mentor if you're <laughs> interested. We hope you will. How do mentors get paired with their littles and what do you what activities do you need to do? Yeah, well, it's all about um the interest of the mentor and of the young person. So when a mentor comes forward to apply, we um, do everything we can to streamline that process where they fill out some, um, you know, the written application. We interview them to get to know their interests, their hobbies, get to know, you know, the type of mentee that they'd be most interested in working with. And then we work really hard to bring mentees together with mentors who already share common interests, common hobbies, um, common personality traits, so that um, when we bring those um, a mentor and a mentee together, we already have a lot, a lot of reason to believe that they're going to be a strong match together. So, you know, so that's something we pay a lot of thoughtfulness and attention to. And then, um, then matches are able to, with the guidance of our match support specialist, we have case managers who work with each match throughout the life of the match to provide support, answer questions, troubleshoot any issues that come up, help think of ideas for them to come up with, to do in the community. But those activities can really be kind of the sky's the limit to anything that they'd like to do together that's reasonable and that, you know, fits within everybody's interests. So, you know, it could be a sports-oriented match where they like, you know, playing basketball together, or it could be, you know, an arts-oriented match where they like doing art projects or going on hikes or reading together or working on homework together or cooking projects. So they're there's really no limit to the kind of activities that they can do together. And then as an agency, we, pr we plan and provide activities on a monthly or every other month, or activities in the community like going on hikes, going, doing uh, gingerbread decorating that we have every year. We have an annual picnic and a canoeing trip. And so, so many activities that we plan that are at no cost to our matches and all our matches are welcome to participate in. How many kids are you working with in Hampshire County right now? Yeah, so at any one time, we um, usually have at least 50 
50 matches who are active, and then we have matches coming in and out of our process all the time. And how many so we, are on that waiting list? Like, how many more do you oh, need? Oh, we, we have quite a few on the waiting list. The waiting <laughs> list is always growing. I think at this point we have, you know, at least um, you know, 50 kids throughout Hampshire County who are looking for wow. mentors. So if you're listening, <laughs> people in Hampshire County, and this seems appealing to you. Yeah. Yes. About how much time commitment is usually needed to be a mentor? Yeah. So there's a campaign going on on the national level. It's called the It Takes Little to Be Big campaign. I don't know if you all have heard of it, but it really is about how mentoring can be within the reach of you know most people's schedules. So it involves meeting with a young person two to four times a month, so about six to eight hours, two to four times a month. Yeah, so that's that could be every other week. It could be, you know, it could be weekly, six to eight hours. And so, you know, it's very flexible. It's based on, you know, the scheduling that works best for the family and for the mentor and you know so it could be you know just on weekends or it could be weekday afternoons or you know it could be you know could be matched up to the scheduling that works um, for each individual involved so you know so we work hard to you know to promote that mentoring you know it really does take little to be big meaning you know it's really something that most people can do and we're looking for mentors of all ages all backgrounds um all, you know, all walks of life are welcome because there's, you know, because we, we have such so many different types of kids waiting. So. Well, one little thing you can do is come hang out with us on Thursday night at Pachorik Electric. Yes. It's just off the highway yep. in Hatfield. It's big love, little performances. It's a karaoke night. There'll be all sorts of local notables there. The district attorney, Dave Sullivan. Um, I know that uh, the mayor of East Hampton performed last year. I bailed her out of a Taylor Swift <laughs> song. She was oh, butchering. No. So who knows if oh. I'll have to do that again Shots i so i get to uh, i get to be one of the mcs everyone's under the bus with you today hampshire college astronomer dr salman hamid mr universe is one of the judges he'll be on our show tomorrow but he's coming to be one of the judges there'll be tarot card reading with our friend and wine yeah. expert and chris katsaro and, Absolutely. And there's a, f- a floating scale about how much the tickets are so that you can, little or big, support Big Brothers Big Sisters. Susan Nicastro, who is the executive director of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And tickets are available at the door. So if you don't have your tickets yet or can't get them in advance, please come to the event and you can get your ticket at the door. Thank now we'll you. just continue to sing the song until the end of the show. Oh, no. Never gonna make you cry. See you tomorrow, Never gonna everyone. Say